the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, welcome back to the broadcast. We're live on location here from the Bass Convention. More information available, registration to online at BassConvention.org. That's BassConvention.org. A gathering like this raises questions, and maybe you've already had this run through your mind as you've heard about a number of gatherings and conventions and events here in San Francisco being canceled over fears of the corona virus and certainly we're beginning to make changes in our lives starbucks today announced it's making changes in how they serve coffee they'll no longer refill so-called personal reusable cups at least for now according to the executive vice president this is just one minor step in which our lives are being impacted the big question of course is with so much news and information out there how do we divide fact from fiction or the truth from, well, frankly, good old-fashioned paranoia. Joining me now with some insights is Dr. Jane Orient, Executive Director of the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons and President of Doctors for Disaster Preparedness, author of Your Doctor is Not In, Healthy Skepticism About National Health Care. And Dr. Orient, great to have you back on the program. And boy, you are, I think, ideally suited to address this issue because certainly there's an aspect here that, that seems as we watch the growing numbers in parts of the world and certainly here at home um, with a sense of bit of fear and trepidation that is this indeed potentially a disaster in the making, in your opinion? Well, it certainly is potentially a disaster, and you raise a very good question about how you separate facts from fiction and paranoia and hysteria from just prudent, prudent um, vigilance. And there's news coming from all kinds of sources, some of it reliable, some of it's not. Just because it comes from official sources, not guarantee it's reliable. Uh, China has been suppressing information we know for a long time. Um, we don't know that our own government agencies don't sometimes have um, different motives for what they tell the public or whether the people who, who are putting out the information are completely competent and or they may just be making errors because there are just so many so many unknowns. Yeah, this certainly seems to be a topic where information like the wind seems to be shifting just about every time you turn around. And so to kind of spend a moment here for the benefit of listeners to separate fact from fiction, I, I, I suppose that the big first question I would have for you is this. In, in looking at the diagnosis and the spike in the number of cases that have been reported both uh, overseas in countries certainly like uh, Italy, Iran, South Korea, Japan, 
Japan, most evidently in China, and then seeing it begin to uh, maybe not mushroom quite yet, but but certainly seeing a significant uptick in cases, particularly here along the West Coast. And one of the things that we repeatedly hear from healthcare professionals is, well, if you want to most effectively combat this, uh, wash your hands. And I, I thought to myself, well, my mother will be pleased to know that it took 40 years to get me here, but having to wash my hands without being asked is now something I'm engaging in on a daily basis. But is it really true? Is is that something as basic as that really effective at, at reducing the risk of, of contamination? Oh, I think it is effective, and it's very, very important to wash your hands thoroughly with soap and water, 20 seconds at least of scrubbing. And I think the reason is that one way to spread this virus is that it it uh, lands on a surface that people touch, a doorknob, a tabletop, and can, can persist there for hours or even days. And then you touch the surface, and then you touch your, your nose or mouth, or you touch your face, uh, you touch your eye, rub your eye, and then you have inoculated yourself. And so you do want to uh, be careful what you touch and, and particularly don't carry whatever contaminant it is to your face. We're hearing warnings about avoiding large crowds. We're hearing here, certainly in San Francisco, more news of um, organizations like Facebook canceling conferences, things of this sort. Is it wise at this stage with with so much uncertainty in terms of, of just exactly how easily this coronavirus spreads to start avoiding large gatherings? What are your thoughts on that? I think it might be a very good idea. We, we really don't know how far this has spread. You know, we see the numbers spiking up, and part of that may be because of an exponential phase of an epidemic. You know, you're two cases and four, and then eight, and then 16, and 32, and it doesn't take long to get to a very huge number. And the other thing is that we have tested very few people in the United States, maybe only 500, until very recently the CDC started allowing pe- people other than themselves to conduct the test. I mean, in South Korea, they screen probably 100,000 people by now. So we don't know how many people are asymptomatic or have had mild symptoms that they recovered from who had the virus, who came to the United States from China long before China acknowledged that there was a problem. And we don't know how many of those tests are false positive. So we're just dealing with a lot of unknowns here. Uh, certainly, if you go to a big game and then you hug and smooch with everybody around you afterwards, uh, you likely to get infected with whatever's going around, be it influenza, infectious mono, or the coronavirus. So it sounds like at this juncture, uh, with, as you indicate, so many variables, so many unknowns, that this is really on the leading edge of this virus. We have no history with it. So uh, the medical experts are still themselves beginning to understand how readily is it transmitted? How quickly can it can it multiply? How long does it survive, um, you know, on, on uh, surfaces and so forth? And so I guess at this point, do you recommend more of an abundance of caution? I think abundance of caution and also be, be prepared because if a quarantine is announced, it may happen rather suddenly, and you may want to self-isolate, even if not commanded to do so. But do you have any food in the house? Do you have the prescription drugs that you rely on? Uh, The government is now recommending you be prepared for two weeks, and I think it probably needs to be longer than that. But that's just a prudent insurance policy, no matter what the emergency is. 
And a lot about this is it, it is novel to us, so we don't have any immunity that's been building up over decades or generations. And we don't even know what the mortality rate is. It might be much worse than the flu if you get it. Um, but, but we don't have a denominator, you know, of how many asymptomatic people who just never even get any symptoms or get over them very quickly are walking around. So when we hear a sense of uncertainty or conflicting information coming from a variety of sources out there, and as you indicated in your opening remarks, some of this is because we're just seeing the information coming in quickly and it's changing very rapidly. Some of it is some agendas out there, quite frankly, where there's a benefit to someone to, uh, let's say, downplay some of the numbers. But aside from that, it sounds like we really need to cut healthcare experts some slack on this because it's just moving very fast and you really haven't had an opportunity to fully study this. Yeah, I think that that, that is uh, definitely the case. And let need to stay tuned to the news. Uh, one source that you might look at is physiciansforcivildefense.org. He's been writing updates and press releases as more information comes to my attention. So that that's one, one source that you can look at, but certainly stay attuned to the CDC website and the World Health Organization website and what your local public health authorities tell you about what your local situation is. Doctor, we appreciate the time. I, I know that this is a tough topic because it's a bit of a moving target, but thanks so much for taking some time out of your busy schedule to be with us. That website, again, you mentioned was physiciansforcivildefense.org? Yes. All right, great resource. Bookmark that. And, uh, again, our thanks to Dr. Jane Orient, Executive Director of the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons, and that website address, again, physiciansforcivildefense.org. 616 on the clock. Let's take a timeout, get you updated on some traffic right now as we swing back over to the KFAX Traffic Center. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Well, as we get started in this segment, let's begin, if we can, with a word of prayer. You hear that phrase all the time. Quite frankly, when there are gatherings of the United States Senate, Congress goes into session. In fact, Congress even has full-time House and Senate chaplain. And it's not unusual for city council meetings to begin with a moment of prayer. In fact, the United States Supreme Court has twice in the last 50 years uphold the notion that a expression of community prayer before a public gathering of some sort is quite within the confines of what's acceptable under the Constitution. Sadly, though, there is a growing drumbeat of opposition, and I think it's important that we be aware of this, because much like what happened with the 1962 decision by the Supreme Court that removed prayer from the public classroom, we're seeing the same kind of assault coming down on the long-standing practice of so-called legislative prayer. To get some insights as to what's happening, we're joined by Jeremy Dice. Jeremy is the Deputy General Counsel 
for First Liberty Institute, a nonprofit law firm dedicated to defending religious freedom for all. And, Counselor, thank you so much for being with us tonight. First, to, to your understanding, can we get any handle on why there appears to be this sudden spike in the last many months to year of more and more cases of city councils that had a long-standing habit or practice of, of a moment of community prayer or asking a member of the, the uh, religious community to come and to lead in a moment of prayer, and now all of a sudden they're saying no more, taboo? What's going on? Well, what's happening is that there are groups that are out there that really despise any aspect of religion popping its head up in public at all. And so even though the law is is one of the most settled areas of the First Amendment in our, in our constitutional jurisprudence, they're still challenging any time religion pops up in a public setting. So if that occurs within a state legislature, with the chaplain leading the prayer, or at your local school board with a volunteer from the community leading the prayer, or even a city councilman leading the prayer by himself on behalf of the council to the council, uh, they're coming in now and saying, well, actually, they're not even citing the law anymore. They're just simply saying that those prayers ought to end because they're, quote, inappropriate and divisive. Well, it's hard to think that something would be inappropriate or divisive when the men who actually framed the First Amendment did so after they were opened in prayer by a chaplain during the Constitutional Convention, so uh, during the First Congress. So th- this is one of the more unique and uh, uh, unifying aspects of our country and our civil tradition. Well, moreover, the expression of faith in the public square has, as you indicate, been, been since day number one, and it, it, it shows itself to this day on multiple aspects. I mean, we, we carry it on the money that's in our pockets. We see it carved into limestone at the United States Supreme Court. Uh, it, it is integral to both the Declaration of Independence and to the United States Constitution. In fact, historically, every aspect of our nation is founded on not religion per se, but on the principles that, that are promulgated by uh, the Christian faith in, or Christian, Judeo-Christian faith in, in general. And so, uh, you know, this is the sad irony here is that it has been a long-standing tradition, but it seems to, as you're suggesting, go to the heart of the notion that there are certain people that wish to do everything that they can to sanitize any aspect of faith from the public arena. That's exactly what's happening. And they're saying that this is somehow uh, divisive and inappropriate, but that can't be the case. Well, just last year, First Liberty Institute litigated a case at the Supreme Court of the United States involving a World War I Veterans Memorial, happened to be shaped like, shaped like a cross on public property. Well, that case, which is called American Legion versus the American Humanist Association, they wanted to tear that monument down and, and protected that. Well, in that decision, the Supreme Court said a plurality of the justices noted that the practice begun by the first Congress stands out as an example of respect and tolerance for differing views and honest endeavor to achieve inclusivity and non-discrimination and a recognition of the important role that religion plays in the lives of many Americans. They're talking about the practice of the very first Congress to open their meetings in prayer. Rather than it being divisive and inappropriate, instead they said, this stands out as an example of respect and tolerance for different views and an honest endeavor to achieve inclusivity and non-discrimination. So the very opposite of what they allege is actually true here. By permitting legislative prayer, we actually get, we actually show more non-discrimination. We show greater inclusivity, and we show even better tolerance for different points of view. 
Now, from the legal standpoint, as I mentioned in my opening remarks, the United States Supreme Court has, on more than one occasion in recent memory, upheld the constitutionality of such public prayer, uh, even even in the context of on campuses at, uh, for example, a graduation ceremony. So they, they're, they're using what appears to be a bit of a scapegoat to say that it's divisive, but there, it doesn't appear as if uh, there's any sort of constitutional leg to stand on here where they can, they can cite chapter and verse, so to speak, to point out how this is beyond just making some people feel uncomfortable, but that there's actually a, a constitutional question that they're somehow raising? Yeah, that, that might be why their letters now that they send with complaints actually well, they don't cite any case law because there's not much to be able to cite. Instead, they just rely upon this subjective standard of inappropriate and divisive as if that's some sort of way for us to, to govern ourselves. That's not the case at all. Uh, in, in, the, in the case of Mars versus Chambers, which was back in the 1980s, the first case to really consider in our democracy, the first case to consider the, the constitutionality of legislative prayer, uh, the Supreme Court there said that, that uh, this, is, this kind of practice is part of the the, uh, the fabric of our society, he said. This is an unbroken and unambiguous practice in our nation's history of more than 200 years. And so there's no doubt that opening the pra- opening legislative sessions with prayer is perfectly constitutional. Then in 2014, I think it was, the case of Town of Greece versus Galloway, the Supreme Court revisited this and said, wait, can we have like local volunteers come in and offer these prayers? And the court said, well, yeah, absolutely. Again, this is something that we've been doing for uh, we don't know how long in our country, probably before we were actually officially the United States of America. These are meant to provide solemn and respectful uh, uh, tones that, that help lawmakers reflect on the shared ideals and common ends, the court said, before they embark, as, it, as Justice Kennedy wrote, the fractious business of governing. It serves a legitimate function, the court says, of making sure we solemnize these events and lend gravity to the proceedings of government. So as you point out, if they're incapable of citing any sort of uh, case law to make their argument, what is the most effective means, in your opinion, Counselor, for we as Americans who find public expression of faith important, we feel that it should not be in any fashion truncated, in the public arena, how can we effectively push back against this trend? Well, there's a couple things. Number one, go to firstliberty.org and, and make sure you're aware of what's going on. Maybe you can sign up for our emails we send out that gives you a lot of information that you can arm yourself with in order to better steward the government that's been entrusted to your care. But, but as you do that, make sure you're talking to your city council, your county commission, even your school board. And the most dispiriting thing I can think of as a First Amendment litigator is when we fight sometimes for years to preserve these precious freedoms that we have, even issues like legislative prayer, these great traditions we've had, only to have lawmakers simply not even put up a fight when the question comes to them. You know, that's happened, as a matter of fact, out in Clark County, uh, Nevada, the Las Vegas area. The school board there decided just to, they got a letter that they complained about the prayer, and they just decided to stop doing their prayers altogether. Well, that, that's so frustrating. If they had just called us, we would have at least talked to them and told them what they should or should not do. And if they had to go to court about the whole thing, which is entirely unlikely, we would represent them for free. We don't charge our clients to do the work that we do. Uh, and so there's an ally on your side. You can, you can actually push back against these things. Don't be cowed into thinking that you have to give up these hard-fought freedoms in order to somehow avoid litigation that probably will never even come anyway. So it's up to you and I as citizens 
to remind our lawmakers that you expect them to fight for these freedoms and to preserve them for the next generation. And, of course, demonstrably, then, we have to be actively engaged, actively involved, and we should be as people of faith um, in the body politic. And to to, uh, allow the expression of our faith to go into the public arena and realize that these are constitutionally protected. They're not granted. God grants the right. The Constitution protects them. But it's up to us to make sure that those protections are not eroded. More information, and as uh, Jeremy Dice mentions, if you find yourself in a situation where you've stood up and you've gotten pushback, First Liberty is available to help you on a pro bono basis. FirstLiberty.org. That's FirstLiberty.org. Our thanks to Councillor Jeremy Dice, Deputy General Counsel for First Liberty Institute. Five, I'm sorry, 6.30 from KFAX. Exactly on the mark. Let's get you an update on traffic right now from the KFAX Traffic Center. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. In Scripture, we as the church uh, were given, are given, a very critical mandate, that is to go into all the world and share the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? The, uh, the Great Commission. Um, and with that, that we would be able to spread that news in Judea and Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth. So that certainly encompasses world missions. Uh, but Judea, that's, uh, that's kind of here at home. That's stepping out your front door and doing what you can to impact your city for Christ. One such ministry that's doing so right at sort of ground zero of the San Francisco Bay Area in San Francisco is SF City Impact. And joining me right now is the director of the Leadership School for City Impact San Francisco, Ryan Sue. Ryan, welcome. Thank you for having me, Craig. Boy, when it comes to uh, mission and ministry opportunities, don't have to go much further than the tip of your nose in the city of San Francisco, do no, you? No, you're right there in the heart of it. You have we're, the Tenderloin, if, you don't, if you're not familiar, is right next to Market Street, right next to Union Square. And that is the hub of the inner city. You have people on the streets, you have low-income housing, and the exciting thing is we get to be part of it day in and day out for 35 years now. And it's not only an aspect in terms of ministry to the least of these, but there's also that sense that, you know, when we talked earlier about global impact, yeah, boy, San Francisco is such a microcosm of the entire world. Yep. You don't have to go very far to preach the good news and literally reach every tribe, tribe and tongue because exactly. just about every tribe and tongue on the planet in one way or fashion or another are represented yeah. in San Francisco in the greater Bay Area. Yeah, yeah. when we do our door-to-door ministry called Adopt a Building, we meet people from the Middle East, from all over Asia, all the time, every single week. And it's exciting to see what God is doing in the middle of San Francisco. Uh, talk about that program for a minute, would you? Because sure. it fascinates me. It, it is the notion, you know, we're, we're going into a village and we're taking that village for Christ. And in this case, as you're going in to take the city of San Francisco for Christ, you, you literally do it life by life, block by block, yeah. building by building. Yep. And to be able to go in and essentially, let's say it's a, it's a you know, a apartment building in San Francisco, yep. to go in and to target every single resident in every single apartment mm-hmm. in that entire building. Yeah, the idea with Adopted Building is every Sunday afternoon, we want to gather in the church from all over the Bay Area to come and go door-to-door with us because we have a, a presence day in and day out in our rescue mission. We have a K-8 Christian school. Uh, we have that leadership school program that I lead. Uh, but Adopted Building is let's 
let's meet people where they're at. Let's go into their homes. Let's introduce them to who we are, to who Jesus is, and let's see what happens. Uh, so often, uh, those simple conversations over a, hey, City Impact is here to meet you, leads to a Bible study, leads to an opportunity to pray with someone, leads to a chance to preach the gospel. Um, and it's fun to see the church come together as one body under the banner of Jesus and not under the banner of our denomination or our, our, our identity. is just we're here to preach the gospel. We're here to, to talk about Jesus. Now, let me ask you a question, Ron. Why not go and do this in Charlotte, North Carolina or Dallas, Texas? Yeah. My goodness, you got mega churches of 30,000, 40,000 members there. People love the Lord. They're hungry. Yeah. They show up to church. They tithe regularly. Yeah. I mean, there are some hungry fish that are biting sure. in sure. many parts of the so-called Bible Belt. You yeah. come here to San Francisco, this is not even the Bible suspenders. I mean, we are nothing <laughs> in that regard. And some might argue that, yes, while the opportunity is great in terms of every type and tongue, as we talked yeah. earlier, yeah. we also have some difficult soil here. Yeah. Different cultures, different sure viewpoints on who God is, that God is, and yeah. then you couple it with San Francisco's long history going back to the 1960s mm-hmm. and Haight-Ashbury, and yep. you know, we've tended to kind of be on the cutting edge of everything that's crazy in culture sure. for the better part of three or four generations sure. now. So why go to a place like San Francisco to try to do this work? Yeah, well, I think for us and our organization, uh, it all starts with our founder story. Pastor Roger Huang started the organization 35 years ago. He doesn't have your typical pastor, pastoral background. He came to know the Lord uh, through a televangelist. But he comes from a Taiwanese family, immigrated to the United States, left home at age 17, 18. And the plan wasn't to start a ministry. The plan was to simply make a living for his family, working a couple jobs, all that stuff. He's waiting for a tow truck to service his car in the Tenderloin, and it's when he sees an injustice happening on the streets. He just happened to be in San Francisco. He happened to be in the Tenderloin. But in seeing that injustice, God spoke to him on the way home, saying, what if thou's your son? Mm-hmm. And in, in the Lord speaking to him, not in an audible voice, but just giving an impression, what if thou's your son? Roger responds, I would have done something about it. Pastor Roger, then the very next day, in Seeing that injustice, he and his wife Maite start giving out 50 sandwiches to the city of San, to the people in the Tenderloin, and have never stopped. And I tell you that story because, like, often we think there needs to be a big business plan, or we need to go where all the fish are biting. But the Tenderloin is a place that is often a place where people are ignored, and people are left to say, "Well, if you want to disappear, go to the Tenderloin." You know, and San Francisco has been viewed as a wasteland. But over the last 10, 15 years, Pastor Roger's been telling stories of like, God is bringing churches here. You know, and now we're seeing churches from Dallas and from the Bible Belt coming to San Francisco to serve with us. And they catch the heart of what we're doing in the Tenderloin. And our, one of the things we love to see is, hey, go do the same in your neighborhood. San Francisco certainly has been trend-setting. What's the old saying? You know, we, we kind of lead the, lead the, 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 uh, the style, we lead the fashion. Usually it starts here, mm-hmm. spreads across the country, spreads yeah. across the globe. Um, while that certainly is true from a societal standpoint, a cultural standpoint, do you think that could be true from a ministry standpoint Absolutely. as well? Absolutely. Absolutely. The place that would have been the least likely on anybody's list to succeed, yeah. a city like San Francisco, 
that God would use that to confound the wise and say, oh, right there, where you think it can't yep. happen is how I'm going to prove that it can happen. And the power of my Holy Spirit is not incapable of even reaching out to the least of these. Exactly. Exactly. When you look at where one of our properties is located, it's the house of our leadership school right on uh, 136 Taylor Street. Well, the city of San Francisco memorialized that block and a couple more blocks of that area of San Francisco and called it the Transgender Cultural District, the first of its kind in the nation. Well, I look at Jesus' call to us to be salt and light in the world, city on a hill we're talking about earlier, and why not be the place where the church engages with men and women of different gender identities? And why not let this be the place where we set the pace for the rest of the country and say, here's what it looks like to love people in radical ways and show them who Jesus is. Like, I have college students coming in from, like, Reno, from Michigan, from all over the country to come and serve and learn what we're doing so they can take it back to their hometowns, so they can impact the rest of this country for Jesus. Almost an incubator in a yeah, sense. Yeah, absolutely. And we're challenging people, hey, earn your degree here. Learn from us. Get hands-on ministry. Do nine months or a summer here with us through our leadership school and see what God can do for your hometown because of your experience here. Is there sort of a Sodom and Gomorrah sense about this? And, and I mean that in, in, in relationship to the notion of wanting to find at least one righteous man mm-hmm. still left standing, that it is critical to save San Francisco, reach San Francisco for Christ, not abandon San Francisco, because there is indeed so much at stake here. Yeah, I think when you look at the way that the gospel is kind of spread, like you mentioned earlier, the Great Commission, like often the work starts in the cities, right? Whether it's Los Angeles or New York, San Francisco is a hub. You have the tech boom that's been going on for a decade now. Um, But for us, when we come together in our day in and day out work, we can't do this alone to reach the Tenderloin. The Tenderloin is 37,000 residents in one square mile. We have 30, 35 staff, most of which are in our K-3 Christian school. So we rely heavily on volunteers like to come and serve with us from corporations and that sort of thing. But what we're seeing is that when, when they get a glimpse of what God can do in a simple act of kindness or simple act of love and preaching the gospel to somebody, they take that into the workplace. They take that into these tech companies that have tons of influence and opportunity. Where then you see Bible studies starting within a tech sector that was previously un- not open to, to Christians just because of an act of service. And do you find it, Ryan, important that, that you're, you're ministering right where you're planted? And I ask that question because some might say, well, wouldn't it be easier if you were coming in from Concord or coming in yeah. from the peninsula, yeah. dropped in, visited, dropped off a few flyers, fed a few people, yeah. but then went back home, wherever home might be, outside of that area yeah. at night as opposed to being right there? Is that is that intentional and why so? Well, I think the call of the gospel has never been to do the easier work, right? And so when we look at our ministry in the Tenderloin, we model after Jesus is Jesus' incarnational ministry. So this is not just you know? drive-by evangelism, no. throw some pamphlets out the window and hope somebody picks one up and reads No, them. we are Sunday through Saturday. We have a full plethora of programs where we say we're not going to let this community go because God has not let this community go. So we have a passion to engage the church in the Bay Area to say, hey, preach in our rescue mission, you know, Monday through Friday. Come to our conference where we host 1,500 Christians annually to serve the Tenderloin. We're not about agendas. We're not about, we're just about, 
hey, see Jesus in the church and see what God can do in the midst of that. Ryan, Sue is with us right now. Ryan is the director of the Leadership School at San Francisco City Impact. Can you stay with us for a minute? Yeah. You hang tight. We're going to take a quick time out, get you an update on traffic here for a final time tonight. If you've just tuned in, our live broadcast on location once again this year from the annual Bass Convention taking place here at Redwood Chapel in Castro Valley at 19300 Redwood Road. Details about this conference over the course of the next, uh, well, remainder of today. Keynote speaker again will be tonight at 7 p.m. Uh, that's Pastor Andrew McCourt from Bayside Church in Sacramento. And then, of course, workshops, seminars, keynote speakers on Saturday and Friday. And, of course, culminating Saturday morning with a special address by our own Dr. Jerry Buckner, who will be speaking at 9.30 a.m. Details on the web at BassConvention.org. That's BassConvention.org. Let's get you that update on traffic right now as we make a final stop in at the KFX Traffic Center and a look at your Thursday ride home. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, we're back in the home stretch here on the Thursday edition of Lifeline 650 on your clock. Our live broadcast from the annual Bass Convention here at Redwood Chapel in Castro Valley gets underway tonight at 7 p.m. with the first opening evening keynote speaker, Pastor Andrew McCourt, senior pastor at Bayside Church in Sacramento. And then, of course, seminars and workshops all day, both Friday and Saturday. And Saturday morning, a keynote by Dr. Jerry Buckner, senior pastor at Tiburon Christian Fellowship and, of course, the host of Contending for the Faith, heard Saturday evenings at 7 p.m. right here on KFAX. So lots to look forward to. And, of course, there's going to be workshops. We've got an exhibit hall here with a lot of resources available to help improve your local community ministry wherever you might be planted right here at the annual Bass Convention. Details on the web, registration too at BassConvention.org. That's BassConvention.org. We asked Ryan Sue to stay with us for another segment. He, of course, is the director of the Leadership School at San Francisco City Impact. We've been talking about um, the whole notion of not running to where it's easy, but sure. running to where the need is. And I guess, it, you know, it, does it make sense to bring buckets of water to somebody who's lounging by a pool? Probably not. But if you find a person out on the desert yeah. who's dying of thirst, yeah. they're the ones that are truly in need of that life-giving, life-sustaining water. And I guess that's true, too, from a ministry standpoint. What you're doing in the Tenderloin is really delivering a message of hope to people that, as you suggested before the break, Ryan, are really kind of disappearing, Yeah, uh, and, and intentionally so. And And I would suspect that you see, as you see... Examples of homelessness, mm -hmm. extreme drug abuse, all all of the things that challenge humanity right there on the street. I mean, you step out your front door and yeah. it's right there, yeah. I guess, really demonstrates how great the need is and therefore how great the opportunity. Yeah, I would look at, I think what motivates me to get up each day is I remember how Jesus in John 4 goes to the Samaritan woman and goes specifically to this well that this woman is intentionally going to in the middle of the day, you know, and she's trying to be avoided. She's trying to disappear. She's trying to be anonymous because of her, her background, whatever that may be. 
And you look at the people in the Tenderloin, and there's a number of reasons why people experience extreme poverty, extreme homelessness, drug abuse, whatever it may be. We just want to be a simple expression of Jesus' love for someone by simply saying, hey, we have been here for all this time. We're, we're not going anywhere. And you may think the entire world's given up on you. Jesus is not. You know, and a lot of people don't know that City Impact, we actually, we are actually a church as well that meets on Sundays. And like, we intentionally have a church in the community that our staff goes to, that our, our college students go to, that we worship together with the, the residents because we want them to see that we're not just going to abandon this community like because Jesus hasn't, you know, and we want to, I pastor the church, I preach to the church, I could be doing a, a zillion other things in any other context, except God has said, like, be here because I haven't given up on this place. In addition to the obvious ministry components that's sure. taking place right there in San Francisco, you're also helping to train leaders. Yeah. You're serving as kind of that, that uh, should we say, uh, the Petri dish, yeah. uh, where there can be an experience of, of, of growth and so that examples and best practices can be taken back to other communities and replicated. Toward that end, tell us a bit about the leadership school at City Impact. Sure. Well, one of the, the heart of City Impact from the beginning has been changing one life at a time. And so it doesn't matter if it's a resident from the Tenderloin or a mission team member or a leadership school participant. We want to see lives changed one person at a time. And so the heart with this leadership school program is seeing excited young Christian leaders saying, I want to do something with my future, with my time right now. I don't want to wait 10 years for a college degree. And so we invite students from all over the country, all over the world even. We've had students from South Africa. I have a student applying from Brazil to serve in the Tenderloin, to get hands-on ministry experience. And some earn college degrees through some of our online partnerships. Um, but they serve for a season. They learn from, from us, from our staff who is committed they read the Bible together. They attend church. They serve in all sorts of contexts, Monday, basically Sunday through Saturday. And then we say, hey, now go do this wherever you end up. One of our students is now a missionary in Ireland. One of our former students, another one is a youth pastor down in Southern California. Another is an accountant in Sacramento. We believe that ministry and leadership is not just in the church, but in every arena and aspect of life. And, and, and nothing more effective than marketplace exactly. evangelism. I mean, let's face it, we all have an opportunity. We don't have to wear our collar on backwards in, in order to be engaged in ministry. Yeah. Each and every one of us, we come in contact with the guy at the grocery store yeah. and the kid who uh, delivers the newspaper. They still do that, I guess, in <laughs> some places. <laughs> and, and, and everybody that we come in contact on a day-to-day -day place in the marketplace. Yeah are all opportunities for us to share our faith. Yeah. The Great Commission is, as you are going, make disciples. You know, it's not just go to a specific one area across the globe. As you're going, wherever it may be, make disciples. So if you have, in the course of our conversation here tonight, really piqued the interest of somebody listening saying you know I, this could be for me yeah i have a sense of adventure yeah i like to go and learn in a place where if you're successful here you can take this and yeah. replicate it absolutely anywhere across the planet no yes. matter no matter what the the, the boundaries may be yeah uh, toward that end if folks want to get more information about the leadership school at city impact mm -hmm. what's the best way to do it if you want to get involved with the leadership school simple thing is go on our website sfcityimpact.com and the cool thing about what we do is so multifaceted. 
you'll see the whole list of our programs from leadership school to our K through Christian school, our health and wellness center, which is a medical clinic in the Tenderloin rescue mission, whatever it may be. Um, you can hop on our website and see that. Another great step into ministry like uh, in the inner city is our conference. We have an annual conference that's happening this year on July 18th, uh, where Christians from all over the Bay will come and serve in the Tenderloin. And it's not your typical Christian conference. This is a great conference. We're at Fast Convention. You're learning, you're experiencing, you're reading from the Bible from all, you're learning from leaders, uh, in very practical means, but, we have our session in the morning for our conference, and then after that, it's serving all day long. It's doing ministry in the tenor. It's washing someone's feet. It's going door to door. It's making sandwiches for people. Um, and then coming back in the evening saying, now go do likewise. Go back to your hometown do the same thing. And, of course, in addition to those opportunities, for people on a more, shall we say, drop-in basis, yeah. that say, you know, I really like to get better equipped in the local church where I serve. Sure. Uh, but we don't have a program like this. But, boy, can I come up for a weekend yeah. and volunteer my time? Yep. Or can I take a week of vacation just came up and say, hey, I'm here. Teach me. I want to learn. L- yeah. let, let me have that Paul Timothy kind of experience. Is that available, too? It is. We do mission trips from for anybody who, who wants to come and serve. So this is uh, the heart of our mission season, spring and summer, is where someone can come for a week, weekend trip, day trip, uh, and come and learn what we do. Um here in the center line. Good stuff. Yeah. City Impact, and again, information available at sfcityimpact.com. That's sfcityimpact.com. And if you have questions specific to the leadership school at SF City Impact, you can reach out to Ryan directly. Easy. It's Ryan at sfcityimpact.com. Or I'm going to give out your uh, private personal cell phone number. No. Uh, is this <laughs> it wouldn't the be the first time. What's the, I want to make sure I have the right number. Which is the best one for me to give out? Because I've done that before. All right. Do it. Area code 415. Jot it, it down. 415-909-8975. That's 909-8975 in area code 415. Or on the web at sfcityimpact.com. And Ryan Sue, thank you so much for dropping by. Thanks for the time, Craig. Let's do it again. All right. All right. That's going to put the button on or the bow on the button. How does that work? Something like that. The bow on the package for (laughs) this edition of Lifeline. Our broadcast continues, but you got to wait till tomorrow at 5 from day number two of the Bass Convention here at Redwood Chapel in Castro Valley. Details on the web at BassConvention.org. That's going to do it. My thanks to, let's see here, a cast of thousands, Mike Matthews, Juan Cornelius, uh, Joel Rivera, and of course, our esteemed producer, Miss Wanda Sanchez. Remember, just don't keep the faith. Get on out there and share it. Till next time, so long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved.